You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Here's what's ahead this hour. Wall Street plays catch up. As the market's V-shaped rebound continues, strategists are scurrying to keep up with its pace. We're going to look at the latest projections and whether stocks are becoming unglued from reality. Plus, up in smoke, why one analyst is warning that vaccine stocks could become the next pot stocks. It's not a good thing. We'll dive into it. And as Robinhood's value explodes, it's drawing increased scrutiny from Washington. We're going to speak with one congressman who's calling the company unethical and wants changes now. We'll have all of that for you. But we do begin with today's markets. Dom, some key levels for the S&P in particular. 33.86, Kelly. That's the one everyone's watching right now because that would be, if we close there, a record high close. That level from back in February, you can see here 33.85 is where we're at. We're a stone's throw, even just kind of spitting distance, if you will, from there. 33.86, remember, that key level to watch on a closing basis. 33.93 is the intraday record high. So those two levels to watch. By the way, the Dow underperforming today, as you can see here, but the NASDAQ returning to that leadership position up almost a full percent today. Record levels of home builder sentiment to the upside, a far cry from where we were just about four months ago with regard to home builder sentiment. If you are looking for places that the market is discounting all those better days ahead, check out what's been happening over the near and medium term with these two ETFs. They both track home construction and housing related stocks. Look at the massive surge that we've seen from those particular ETFs just since the COVID lows in March. Remember, home builder sentiment, a big deal, responsible for a lot of jobs in the U.S. economy as well. We'll watch that trade. And then the stock of the day so far is NVIDIA and just the semiconductor industry in general. Now, NVIDIA is up about 7% today, driven in part by analysts at Susquehanna who have now put a price target of $540 per share. That's a street high, representing even more upside for this stock that's already up, again, 210% in just the last year. NVIDIA rising that, or at least raising that tide for all of the semiconductors out there. We'll watch that trade in the afternoon session as well. Remember, Kelly, they report earnings Wednesday after the close. Back that over. has been an incredible run. Dom, thank you very much. As the markets do continue their climb, Wall Street strategists are scrambling to catch up. Today, Goldman upping its target to the highest on the street at 3600 It's the firm's second hike since May. In the past month, it's the fourth firm to raise its price target. Does it mean the rally is for real, or does it mean the ride is mostly over now? Joining me are Simeon Hyman, the global investment strategist at ProShares Advisors, and Phil Camparelli's investment specialist at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Phil, I'm going to start with you because you say it is an exciting time to be a global asset yep. allocator. <laughs> Explain. Yeah. It's always exciting, Kelly, but it's really exciting right now because not only do we get all the great resiliency of the U.S. equity market that we've had in the portfolio forever, it's been the stalwart, but for the first time since 2017, Kelly, we're joining that overweight in the U.S. with overweights to Europe and overweights to emerging equity. All at the same time, uh, you know, the, the, the beginning of that thesis was was policy. Everybody knows that. Right. So from late March to early June, it was all driven by fiscal and monetary policy. But what's really exciting right now is that we're being validated with this position with economic data. So so the yeah, go ahead here. Here's so if you're overweight, the U.S. emerging markets and Europe, how, how can you be over, overweight everything? So we're overweight everything because interest rates are so low, Kelly, we're not looking there. Right. So. We're, we're funding that position from fixed income. Fixed income, mm. especially core fixed income, is very tough. We'd rather be in credit than really safe fixed income. And then we're over, it's a new global cycle, Kelly. If, it's a, if, if a new global cycle is happening, that's not a U.S. exceptionalist story. That's not just a FANG stock story. 
That's Europe and emerging markets. And watching the dollar weaken over the past couple of months is clearly validating that position. Because if you're an investor in the U.S. and you're investing abroad, you want that dollar to weaken yeah. based on global growth dynamics. And that's what's happening. No, it's fascinating. Weaker dollar helps U.S. multinationals, helps emerging mm -hmm. markets, to some extent helps Europe. All right. So, so if Phil thinks we're in the kind of a new global cycle here, Simeon, uh, that would suggest it can go on for some time. Would you share that optimism even after the V-shaped rebound that we've seen in the market this year? You can't argue with low interest rates. And the economic news has been a little bit better than expected. And earnings season was a lot better than expected. But particularly in the U.S., I don't think you can take it so far across the board. And obviously, I'm talking about the valuation of tech stocks. You know, we're at around nine times price to book as a relative multiple D to the S&P or the S&P 500 value index. We're about as high as we were at the bubble. Hmm. Yes, they make money this time around. On the flip side, value is a little junkier, but if you're looking for rotation, I still think the, that the quality story makes sense. Think about this. The value index has had about 20% of its names cut its dividends so far this year. The S&P has had about 15% of its dividend cutters. If you look at the S&P 500 dividend aristocrats, one name out of 65 has cut its dividends. So I think you have to worry about tech valuations. I wouldn't flip all the way to the value side because what if it's not a complete V-shaped recovery, but the quality in the middle of the style box is a place that's had a little bit of a discount uh, and a little bit more robust for what will probably be a choppy recovery. One follow-up question to that, Simeon, for people who are tempted by the valuation of value stocks, so to speak, is what happens if the pandemic is just an acceleration where the companies that are going to be winners in the next five to 10 years in the digitized economy are simply enjoying those gains now and the value names that will be out of favor are just more out of favor now. In other words, we've accelerated the time horizon, uh, in which case you maybe wouldn't want to own some of those cheaper names, so to speak. No, that, I, I, I'm exactly on that page. I think you don't want to go deep value right now. And I don't think you need to completely abandon technology where there is a longer term story. As an example, uh, tomorrow we get the e-commerce report following up on retail sales from last week. I think we're going to see an even bigger surprise to the percentage of retail that's moved online. We know that that's partly a lockdown story, but that's got legs mm -hmm. that was starting mm -hmm. long before the pandemic and likely will uh, continue long after. So there's certainly pockets with a long-term story uh, to it. Yeah. And I don't, and deep value, I, I agree. I'm not sure I want to be there because it needs such a V-shaped recovery. Before we go, Phil, quickly just respond to what Simeon mm -hmm. said. Would you be yep. telling people as much as you're overweight, the U.S. in general, to, to avoid big uh, cap tech names? So we're still leaning slightly towards growth, Kelly, but we are not adding to that. And this is all the same trade. If the Fed is, is successful at promoting inflation expectations, the last CPI was strong. We saw a steepening of the yield curve, right? And rates have trickled higher. If they're right about promoting inflation expectations over the next couple of years, that value story is going to come in play okay. in a pretty big way. So we don't want to avoid the value because we're, our bet is that we're going to be able to get this global growth story to get rates trickling higher, which should be good for value. All right. Fascinating. Thank you both. Uh, Phil Camparelli, Simeon Hyman, we appreciate it as always. Let's talk about the dollar. The index sliding back to near two-year lows, continuing to weaken, and now reportedly leading hedge funds to short it for the first time in a couple of years. Rick Santelli is here with more for us. Rick. You know, it very much makes sense because a lot of things change right around June. And one of the things that may have changed the most 
was all those dollar funding issues. Let's look at an emerging market ETF starting June 1st, the EEM. You can clearly see it really has done quite well from 38 to over 44. That's about 15 percent up in that time period. And we know that emerging markets have done well, but so has Europe, especially considered sharing debt. So put an EU chart, a currency on top of that, and you see they move together. But one thing that doesn't move with the euro or with the emerging markets, and that's the dollar index. So let's look at year to date of the emerging market ETF with the dollar index. And there is your big story. We continue to see the dollar moving down. We see the emerging markets doing better. And in the final analysis, maybe higher rates on the backside, as our last guest was talking about, could reverse it. But for the moment, seems to be flashing yellow for the dollar and flashing green for the euro and the emerging markets. Kelly, back to you. Quick follow-up question, Rick, because we often, you know, talk about when hedge funds, you know, piling on a trend one way or the other. Sometimes it's contrarian sign. What, what is their track record when it comes to betting against the dollar or making currency bets in general? Does this tell you that maybe people are too uh, consensus on its weakening? Well, I think what I would say is they overcompensate on the notion it's a reserve currency. I think piling in isn't a bad idea. They might be a bit late. But ultimately, remember, foreign exchange tends to trend for long periods of time. I think they're going to be okay for a while. It's going to be the good news of the future that hurts that position. As less stimulus is needed and the long end and the curve steepen, that will be the unwinding and undoing of that hedgy trade. And you wonder just how close we are to that uh, junction. Rick, thank you, sir. Rick Santelli, we appreciate it. Let's turn now to Speaker Nancy Pelosi calling lawmakers back to Capitol Hill this week to vote on a bill that would bar changes to the U.S. Postal Office amid fears over delayed ballots. Eamon Javers is live in Washington for us with the very latest and a closer look at the challenges facing the Postal Service. Eamon? Yeah, Kelly, that's right. A couple of developments here this afternoon to bring you up to speed on. As you say, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi is calling Congress back from their summer vacation. They're off campaigning and going to the Democratic Convention this week. On Saturday, though, they will come back and vote on a bill that would give $25 billion to the U.S. Postal Service, which is really struggling. It's also going to roll back some of the changes that have been put in place by the Postmaster General. Democrats worry those changes are sabotaging the Postal Service's ability to conduct mail-in voting. Uh, in the election this fall. The president, for his part, continues to tweet and spoke to reporters today uh, as he departed the White House, uh, venting some of his criticisms of the Postal Service, saying it's been mismanaged for years and also saying that mail-in voting is a, quote, very dangerous thing. So just how bad is the financial picture at the post office? Well, the Q3 report is out. Uh, $17.6 billion in revenue for the Postal Service, over $19.8 billion in expenses. You do the math, that gives you a $2.2 billion net loss for the Postal Service just in the third quarter. So they are losing a significant amount of money there. And you look at the way the pandemic has really changed the Postal Service in terms of its operations. Uh, all of the, the stuff that you get in the mail is down for the most part, except for shipping and packages. So marketing mail down 37.2%, first class mail down 6.4%, but shipping and packages, as we've all shifted to this sort of work from home, Amazon package drop off at your house, all that is up 53 
6.6%. So some big changes for the Postal Service uh, during the course of this pandemic, and they do need some money. Democrats say uh, that funding is on the way. We'll see whether the president uh, is inclined to sign a bill and whether it can get through the Senate, Kelly. Back so, Eamon, just to make sure I follow, because there's so many different narratives with the post office now and so many issues, the question of whether they can get ballots to people is independent of the question of whether mail-in ballots are a good idea? Right. Sure. I mean, there's there's one thing, which is the practicality of doing it. The second thing is, should it be done in the first place? The president says mail-in ballot voting uh, is ripe for fraud. Uh, he says that foreign governments could actually meddle in the election using mail-in ballots. Democrats say, no, that's not the case. And because of the pandemic, more Americans are, are going to vote by mail this year. It's expected than maybe any year previous to this. So it's going to be an enormous test of that system and the integrity of the election itself. Democrats say they're worried that the president, through his postmaster general, uh, is meddling in the post office's ability to conduct an effective election. The president has said over the weekend it could be months or years before we know the results of this election if the bulk of it is done by mail. Uh, he says that's not a good thing for the United States. Democrats say they can tally up the votes pretty quick and they should have a good election. All right. And they're trying to get that funding on the way to make sure those ballots could go out. I think I'm following. Eamon, right. thank you very much, sir. We appreciate okay. it. Eamon Jabbers with all the latest moves in Washington. Still ahead, up in smoke, we're going to speak with one analyst who says the vaccine stocks could be a replay of the euphoria we saw in the pot stocks a few years back. We know how that ended. Plus, bye-bye Alibaba, Berkshire's bullion bet, and Big Apple bookings. That's all ahead in Rapid Fire today. Stay with us. We're back in two. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back as multiple companies enter late stage trials for their COVID-19 vaccines and rack up government contracts. Their stocks have been on a tear. Take a look at Novavax, BioNTech, and Moderna. Novavax among the best of the performers, up more than 3,700% this year. My next guest says, be careful. These vaccine stocks could be the next weed stocks. Joining me now to explain is Jared Holtz. He's the healthcare equity strategist at Jefferies. Jared, it's good to have you. And you tell me about the similarities you see here. Kelly, thanks a lot for having me. I really appreciate it. So I've been doing a lot of thinking on, on these vaccine names, and they seem to be their own separate universe with respect to the stock performance, the, the magnitude of euphoria with respect to different trial announcements, whether it's a trial design, start, some sort of result. And it just makes me think back to the marijuana stocks of 2017, 2018, when we saw a very similar setup. These were all sort of like penny stocks or, or the equivalent of that. And then they all exploded when, when the investor base thought that this was going to be the next you know, leg of growth. And look at them now. They're all trading much closer to multi-year lows than multi-year highs as the crowded nature of the space and reality is set in. So I'm not suggesting that the data sets that we are going to get here are going to be unequivocally negative. I just feel like we're in the same sort of psychological zone we were in back then. Yeah, and you've compared the market caps, you know, whereas cannabis stocks started out worth $32 billion, they more than doubled in value and then have kind of come full circle to $41 billion, and bulk of that is from Scott's miracle Grow. So you take that out and they're worth even less. Vaccine mm -hmm. stocks started out Jan 1 worth $18 billion. They're now worth $65 billion, and you're worried they could be headed back to where they came from. Let me ask you as well about how just how lucrative 
winning this vaccine competition would be. Uh, we know the government's not interested in seeing this be a major profit engine. That's totally right. When we look at the number of players here and what the government has already done in terms of funding, we've gotten almost $10 billion worth of funding, and that's a combination of development effort, but also procurement. So buying these vaccines, buying the injections before we even know what the phase three data is. And I think just based on the comments out of the large cap pharma group, that being Johnson & Johnson, Pfizer, Merck, and, and others, it seems like the larger companies are going to be willing to be much more aggressive on price, or at least cognizant of the fact that we're dealing with a pandemic. So how much they are willing to charge, I think there's going to be at least some sort of, um, you know, sentiment around as far as what, what they're willing to take. Yeah. And Moderna as well. I mean, you could argue, well, they're, they have more at stake. They have more expense and more kind of on the line for this. So that's why they're maybe less negotiating on price. But I think the bigger issue as well from all of us who are curious about when this vaccine will be developed and how quickly is, you know, I don't want to put it quite this way, but do you think that none of these quote unquote vaccine names are going to come through and, and have a vaccine in the end? Or are you saying even if they do, you got to be careful because of the way that they've been trading? Yeah, the latter point, Kelly, for sure. I, you know, I, I was with you a couple months ago in, in terms of, you know, trying to get ahead of what we thought was going to be a, a very accelerated approval timeline prior to the election. I think you've seen a lot of politicians, including the president, sort of echo that, um, echo that view over the past couple of weeks. But to your question, even if we get several of these vaccine players that put out good data, it's going to be, you know, several companies, if not more, that are vying for this market share and what I believe is going to be a, a very, very price sensitive market. And then furthermore, we don't really know how long COVID-19 is going to last. So many of the experts have been have been wrong with respect to the duration of this virus anyway. So, you know, what if coronavirus goes away in 2021 or, you know, better off sometime this year? What happens to the valuations of these companies if we get through a period of time where the virus is less severe? So there are so yeah. many things to consider here. And I think the, the number of players, the, the level of competition is also one of my concerns here. And I just want to ask you before you go to make sure people are aware. I mean, you're approaching this as a healthcare equity strategist. So these valuations to you are front and center every day. What would you recommend for people who want exposure to a vaccine winner or a COVID solution or something like that, if not some of the names we've mentioned? Well, I feel like the, the less risky way to play the group is to own some of the large cap pharma companies that actually have a base business or some sort of stability underneath the vaccines themselves. So that would be AstraZeneca, Merck and Sanofi, even though those programs are later, uh, there's a there's a chance that they have the best data when all is said and done and you're not paying up for any of those programs. And I think in addition, I would I would be recommending the manufacturers, the research organizations that are. Um, that are involved in all of these companies. It's sort of like the Levi Strauss of the gold rush when right. you look at the, the CRO space. You want to sell the picks and shovels. <laughs> exactly. Jared, it's good to have you. Thank you, sir. Kelly, thank you. Jared Holtz of Jeffries. Still ahead, Apple, Amazon, and Facebook may be the most high-profile names investors are buying these days, but they, believe it or not, are not the most overbought. We'll tell you who is next. Plus, Unethical. That's how one congressman describes trading startup Robinhood. He joins us live with the changes he says are needed to protect customers. We're back in two.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get a check on markets. The Dow is the kind of kid left sitting out of class today. Uh, He's down 53 points, but everybody else is positive, and that's where the major headlines of the session come in. The S&P 500 is up a third of 1%, 33.85. We're just a point below its all-time closing high, 33.86 you want to watch for that level. We close above it today. That is a new record closing high. The Nasdaq has already achieved that, but in the last couple of minutes, it just hit a new record intraday high. So again, it was first to close the across the line for a closing high. Now a new intraday high in the S&P right on its heels today, the Dow setting out. Here are some of the individual movers. We're also on Apple 2 trillion watch this afternoon. The stock would need to trade above 467.77 in order to hit that market cap milestone. We're at about 458 and change today. It's actually down slightly. Shares of Overstock are soaring after being initiated with an overweight at Piper Sandler. They're pointing to a well-timed refocus to home furnishings as one of the reasons why Overstock is just an unbelievably volatile name. It's up 20 22% today. Meanwhile, shares of space are coming back down to earth. This after a cautious column in the Wall Street Journal saying launch delays are highlighting the uncertainty around the company's business case. Virgin Galactic, though, is down only about 3%. Right now, it's under 18. And finally, take a look at Bitcoin. It's trading back above $12,000. That's the highest level in more than a year. Flip side, as we've been talking about all this hour, of the dollar's weakness. So about a 5% pop for Bitcoin today. Let's get to Sue Herrera now for our CNBC News updates. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. Some disturbing new numbers on COVID and kids. According to the CDC, the number of children infected, infected, I should say, with COVID-19 is increasing. A little over 7% of all reported cases were among children as of August 3rd. Children make up about 22% of the U.S. population. Cook County State's Attorney General uh, Kim Fox is found to have abused discretion in the case against actor Jussie Smollett, but didn't do anything criminal. Special Prosecutor Dan Webb released his report today saying he found evidence of, quote, substantial abuses of discretion and operational failures, end quote, on the part of Fox's office. And a heat wave continues to scorch the southwest United States. 130 degrees was recorded in Death Valley, California, by the National Weather Service on Sunday. It is considered to be the hottest temperature ever reliably recorded on the planet. Death Valley also holds the record for the highest temperature ever, 134 degrees set back in 1913. But that number is disputed due to the lack of modern technology at that point. Suffice it to say, Cal... It is really, really hot out there. Yeah, and we've experienced that the last couple weeks on a more modest uh, way over this part. Exactly. So thank you very much. Mm -hmm. When we think about stocks that investors seem to be piling into these days, we often think of the names like Apple, Amazon, and Facebook. But if you dig into the stats, you'd be surprised to learn it's not the fang heavyweights that are the most overbought. This week, we're going to look at some surprisingly overowned names in our Crowded Kings segment. Dom Chu is here with more. As we talk about the moves that we've seen, Kelly, the idea is we have measures of momentum that a lot of traders look towards to see if a stock is something they called overbought or really moved to the upside in a short amount of time or oversold, moving to the downside a lot in a short amount of time. So take a look at these two measures of momentum, just two. There are many of them out there. But moving averages is one of them. Just to take a look at how many or how a stock is performing given its relative performance to its average price over the last, say, 10 20, 50, or 200 days. And another one is the Relative Strength Index, or RSI. You'll hear that one referred to quite a bit as well. This one takes a look at how a stock is trading right now, given how it's traded 
against its you know, gains and losses over a short amount of period of time. So those particular ones in context, let's take a look at one particular stock you mentioned, Amazon.com. We know it's been a juggernaut so far. It's worth one and a half trillion dollars. This purple magenta-ish line represents the 50-day average price for the stock. But look at where Amazon is. That gap right there is about 8% higher than where it's traded on average over the last 50 days. That's a pretty good trend for Amazon shares. So this is a good one. But then take a look at this particular stock. This is Best Buy. Best Buy has been an absolute beast over the last few months here, getting a tailwind from the COVID trade. That big upside move here has now put it roughly 22% above its average price for the last 50 days. So by some measures, Kelly, Amazon, yes, very much a positive momentum story, but some other stocks out there have had a lot more positive momentum relative to their average prices. It's something that a lot of traders look at, but we'll continue to watch some of these names, Best Buy being one of them, Kel. It's fascinating. I wouldn't have thought Best Buy. I mean, we know it's a good performer, but still, apparently the word is out, Dom. Thank you. Best Buy is the crowded king today. How has it performed lately? Well, year-to-date, the stock is one of the better performers in the retail landscape. 26% gains year-to-date are not too shabby, given everything that's happened. It's up more than 130%, so it's more than doubled from its 52-week low back in March when the stock was trading at just $48. And it is a dividend of just about 2%. That is a higher payout right now than Apple, Microsoft, and Walmart. Coming up, Berkshire's shiny new bet. Uber could sort of shut down in California. A steady stream of elopements in New York hotels. And will the U.S. say bye-bye to Baba? It's all ahead in rapid fire. Stay with us. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines are Robert Frank, Dom Chu, and John Fort. It's great to have everybody here. First up, Alibaba is just the latest Chinese tech company caught in the middle of the U.S. and China splinternet conflict. President Trump saying in a news conference this weekend, guys, that he's considering banning the likes of Alibaba. Earlier this month, he issued a pair of executive orders giving TikTok's parent company ByteDance and Tencent, the owner of WeChat, giving them 45 days to find U.S. buyers. John, how significant is putting Alibaba into the conversation now? I mean, potentially really significant, Kelly. I don't get it. I mean, the the Trump administration potentially undermining its own argument about uh, not wanting China to have access to consumer data, data on U.S. citizens. That's not the business Alibaba is in. This isn't some consumer app that everybody's got on their phone. This is about small business accessing uh, Chinese manufacturing capacity largely. So once you throw them in the argument, is this really about protecting U.S. citizens' data, or is it really about some political fight with China? Robert, what do you think? Well, I think you couple that with TikTok. And remember, you know, the administration on Friday put out a new announcement saying that this has to be done by November. They already said it, it really a deal had to be done by September 20th. Otherwise, no companies could no U.S. companies could do business with TikTok. What will be interesting after that deal is whether the Chinese allow the U.S. government to look at all the financials to interview employees of TikTok and its parent company and to look through all the financials and all the technology. So these requirements, to John's point, go beyond the scope of are you protecting data to really are we sort of encroaching on their rights and their companies 
with the U.S. government. I wonder, Dom, if it's if it's kind of testing the water somewhat to say, is there an appetite amongst the U.S. public to further splinter net uh, the business relationships between U.S. and Chinese companies, whether or not, you know, accessing data on my phone has anything to do with it? I mean, it's testing the waters and it's also kind of changing the temperature, right? I mean, it wasn't that long ago that you saw President Trump then-candidate Trump, President Trump, standing right next to Jack Ma, the founder of Alibaba, talking about the success story that Jack Ma was. So if you take a look at the juxtaposition of how the relationship has changed between the U.S. and China, President Trump has talked about the last eight months being a lot different. Look at the last four years. It wasn't that long ago. These two were on good terms. Now it seems like that whole relationship is thawed out quite a bit and then maybe frozen up again. That's a great point. John, finally, is there any other way we should be thinking about this? I mean, I'm not saying it would be a slip of the tongue, but what what other possible, you know, buckets might something on Alibaba fall into? There's also, again, more cracking down on Huawei. Is it possible that while this isn't about, you know, personal data surveillance, it, it just goes back to this whole idea of tit for tat? Well, I, I think that's the political direction. But, you know, watching this from a financial perspective and, and from a kind of technological perspective, I think it's important to keep eyes on data and principles. Whatever governments are doing, whatever companies are doing strategically, it, it's important, I think, to, to know what are the base considerations about data, about security, and about strategy that are important here, because politicians, they have their own priorities. Yes, and we know we'll he be hearing a lot of them in the next couple months, but your points are well taken, guys. I appreciate it. Let's talk about Berkshire. Hathaway's bet on gold in a move antithetical to Warren Buffett's criticism of the magical metal. Berkshire acquired nearly 21 million shares of Barrick Gold, guys. Now, this is only $600 million. This is like a quarter percent of the portfolio. Barrick Gold, though, I mean, the investors there don't care. The shares are up over 11 percent today. But, Dom, let's talk about what's really going on. There's no way this was Warren Buffett himself buying, right? There's no way. The conventional wisdom and folks I talk to that are more familiar with, with Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway than I am all say that this is not likely something that Buffett put into play himself. This, this might very well be Todd Combs or Ted Weschler, the two guys that he has put in charge of the overall Berkshire portfolio. We know that Warren Buffett in the past has taken the more active role in mega, mega, huge deals, multi, multi-billion dollar transactions, large stakes in mega cat companies. Barrett Gold, this is an interesting move here only because we've seen the, the fruits of their labor. I mean, these gold mining stocks have surged in this time being because the COVID pandemic and fears about inflation have put a real tailwind to that. It's just very interesting that this Barrett gold trade has now taken every other gold miner up along with it. Anything you'd add to that, Robert? Yeah, I would just say let's not confuse the company with the commodity. It's everyone saying what suddenly Buffett loves gold. He hates gold. Well, he's buying the company. And let's remember, it fits a lot of his criteria. It, it generates a huge amount of income, $4 billion last year, this year over $700 million. It's 11 times earnings, so it's fairly cheap, and it pays a good dividend. So as a company, it, it fits the Buffett standards, hmm. and let's not confuse it with actual physical gold, which he has rightly said it doesn't make sense for Berkshire to own. That's fair. It's just that these companies have been around forever. I, does he think now is the, the value? I, whatever. I, that's a very, very good point. I will reserve a great, I'll take it with a grain of salt. It just is a very head-scratching move today. All right, next, a group of California state legislators are proposing a statewide wealth tax. This is the first of its kind in the U.S. The proposed rate, 0.4% of net worth over $30 million. This comes as the Golden State obviously faces a huge budget deficit brought on by the pandemic. Some New York state legislators are pushing for a similar wealth tax. Robert, how much 
success do you think this one has in actually becoming law in California? Uh, totally unclear. I mean, the governor hasn't weighed in. In New York, they had a similar wealth tax on unrealized capital gains. Governor Cuomo has weighed in on the New York proposal. But look, the states are in dire financial situations right now. California looking at a $54 billion deficit, New York $13 billion. And the money's got to come from somewhere. And in both those states, it's got to come from the wealthy. That's, that's the only taxpayer that where you can generate enough income. And the wealth tax, 0.4% on assets over $30 million. So if you're worth $50 million, you pay maybe $200,000 a year extra in California. That doesn't sound like a lot, but that's on top of a millionaire's tax that would push the top rate in California to 16.8%. So you're talking about a combined federal and state rate of 54% alone. Add the wealth tax on top of that. That could drive more wealthy or even affluent Californians out of the state. John Fort, I read another article over the weekend about the exodus of tech workers from San Francisco. Do we need to coin the term Texit here? Because (laughs) what's to stop people now from relocating if they feel as though the state is hostile to them doing business? Well, it's not a lot of tech workers making, you know, 30 million a year or with that kind of net worth necessarily. But I I think maybe you buy stock in Zoom uh, (laughs) at this point because, you know, the the Benioffs, the Zuckerbergs, et cetera, of the world, maybe a tier down from there because they can afford to pay whatever tax. But, you know, the, the, the folks who do have uh, that money but don't want to fork over that 200000 that Robert Frank was, uh, was talking about, no reason for them not to live in Nevada or, or Texas. Right. You know, Elon Musk is talking about moving headquarters. Yeah, I think it's interesting that they're so seriously floating this proposal right now, maybe out of desperation, but this would seem like maybe the worst time, the, the worst climate in which to do it. But let's stay in California, kind of stay with the theme here of what we're talking about. This also pertains to some major companies headquartered there. It's Uber and Lyft. Uber rides may come to a halt in the state this week. They say Uber Eats will actually be able to carry on because the company technically is a delivery service, not a ride-hailing service. Ride-hailing would shut down on Friday if a lawsuit brought by California and three major cities to classify drivers as employees stands. And, Dom, this, first of all, for the stocks, it's interesting. They just reported a quarter in which they made more money from Eats anyway, but that wasn't the long-term business plan. No, it wasn't the long-term business plan. This is one that they were forced into. And what you're talking about is a basic technicality, right? The whole idea is that Uber and Lyft operate in these particular jurisdictions right now under this kind of assumption that the drivers are independent contractors. You pay them for what they do and nothing more. No benefits, anything like that. If you start to change that business model, things become a little bit more dynamic with regard to whether or not, not just the company can be affected by the payroll costs and expenses, but also whether drivers want to actually be a part of that particular ecosystem. The delivery thing, I'm not sure if it's a longer secular trend, right? The whole idea is transportation of people was the the main reason why these companies existed. This might just be a patchwork solution right now in the delivery side. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it stays long term. No. And so, Ford, I'll go back to you and kind of the issue we were just discussing with the wealth tax and the exodus of some workers and now maybe some businesses. I mean, what's the future for Uber and Lyft if they're not operating in California in the ride sharing business? I think the future is probably that they press the voters to change the law in this situation so it's no longer an issue. Like, I think the politics here is another case where they're so exciting that people might lose track of the core issue. And the core issue is supposed to be benefits 
for these workers? You know, do they have health benefits? Do they have unemployment and sick leave protection? There are other ways to do that right. other than classifying them as traditional employees. Hopefully some more of those get explored. No, and it's true. Maybe this forces the issue uh, back to the ballot box, so to speak. And finally, guys, as New York City slowly reopens for business, hotels are opening their doors after nearly five months in lockdown. Tourists and business travelers are still largely absent because of travel restrictions. Local residents on staycations and eloping newlyweds, though, are booking a healthy number of rooms, Robert. They've literally called this out as a big portion of the business. Yeah, the, the hotels are saying a lot of local New Yorkers are coming to these hotel rooms. I think the only room that's more cramped and overpriced than a Manhattan apartment is a Manhattan <laughs> hotel room. So I'm dubious these guys are going to do well. But look, Manhattan was already over-hoteled pre-COVID. You had 144,000 rooms as of next year, 22,000 coming on uh, in the next 12 months. And there were already hotels going into default in January and February. So I just think this whole industry in New York has to come down in price. Investors are going to have to take a lower return. And ultimately, they're going to just have to be fewer hotel rooms because even pre-COVID, there were just way too many and prices and room rates we're coming down. Dom? This is a matter of survival, just like Uber and Lyft, right? They're going to delivery because it's not their core business, but it could be. With hotels, this is just about <laughs> making sure that you get enough money in the door to keep you afloat for when things get back to normal. I applaud it. I think every business should be out there trying to figure out entrepreneurial ways to make <laughs> money and stay afloat during this time because we will at some point get back to normal. Uh, John Ford, now, last word. I, I'm stuck on eloping, newly, eloping newlyweds. <laughs> really? Is that really a significant... Are these, yeah, Mr. and Mrs. Smith for this hotel room? I think maybe that's Yeah, they're going to have to show the marriage contract yeah. to be counted that way. Thank you all today. We appreciate it. Robert Frank, Dom Chu, and John Ford joining us for Rapid Fire. Still ahead, unethical and shame on you. Those are just some of the fighting words Congressman Sean Kasson has for Robin Hood and its executives. He joins us with why he's taking them to task and what he hopes to change next. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back in a couple. Welcome back. Robinhood announcing today it's landed its third mega investment of the year, pushing its valuation over $11 billion. As the valuation is growing, so is the scrutiny. Robinhood is not doing enough to protect investors, according to Democratic Congressman Sean Kasten. In an interview with Barron's over the weekend, he called the company's business model unethical. His district includes Naperville, Illinois, where 20-year-old Alex Kearns lived before he died by suicide after seeing what he thought was a $730,000 negative balance in his Robinhood account. Joining me with more now is the congressman himself, Sean Kasson, and it's great to have you, sir, here. Welcome. Hi, Kelly. How are you? I'm glad that we're here and, and talking about this, the humongous popularity of Robinhood and this tragic event uh, with your constituent suicide is raising a lot of questions. What what changes do you think need to be made? Um, look, we need to confront the fact that Robinhood is a business model. And I, 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 give, I, I fault no one for trying to make money. I spent 16 years as an entrepreneur myself and a CEO. I never thought I was going to end up being in Congress. But hopefully that experience counts for something. One to make money is fine. But they have a business model that is fundamentally based on creating addictions that is being presented to people as a way to generate wealth. And we need to be honest about that. We have an obligation in my current job. I have an obligation to protect investors. And they're not holding up their end of the bargain. 
So let's talk about what that would look like, because obviously Robinhood isn't the only platform where people can trade in the market. And since time immemorial, people have been getting burned, kind of learning the hard way about what it really means to make a good investment. Uh, what changes do you think specifically need to be made to a platform like Robinhood's? Well, you know, you know, the old saying, and I know that I'm sure you guys have said it on your show, I learned it from my dad, that if you're sitting at a poker table and you can't tell who the fish is, then you're the fish. <laughs> the, this is a business that makes their money off order flow. They advertise as commission-free trades, and they then use all sorts of behavioral techniques that are no different than, you know, things that get my, my daughters addicted to their video games to get people to go a little bit farther. They comply with the letter of the law, know your customer. But the fact that Alex Kearns was able to get a margin account, you know, as, as a suicide note said, how did I as a 20-year-old get the ability to borrow almost a million dollars when I have no income? The, that is not a legal question. That is an ethical question. Sure. But is and, that, is, let me ask it this way. What is within Congress's power to do? Um, you know, so, so if I'm Robin Hood, and, and I would hope they've realized from this episode that maybe there should be a better way to display the information so he understands what is really lost and what's really at stake and so forth. Uh, but what changes can you make to tactically avoid that kind of misunderstanding without changing the experience that others might have on the app? Well, look, we created the SEC years ago was created to protect investors. I think sometimes we lose sight of that when we say that our financial regulators have an obligation to democratize access to capital. That's not what the SEC is for, it's to protect investors. And when we had um, Secretary Clayton before us a few months ago, we, you know, he, he made the observation, I think accurately, that the SEC is a disclosure-driven organization. And if investors don't understand the disclosures that they're given, then we are not doing our job as regulators to protect investors. Um, I introduced a bill, H.R. 1815, early in this Congress, specifically to do market testing of SEC disclosures, which would essentially say the same as any business marketing agency does. If you ask people what they're being disclosed and they can't answer that question accurately, right. then we haven't done our job as regulators to make sure those disclosures are easy to understand. We've, you know, we've passed that on the House floor. I'd like the Senate to take it up. So let me ask as I pointed you out to Mr. Clayton, the SEC could, could do that by rule. Let me ask you this as a last question. Given what you've laid out about the SEC's mandate and so forth, would you consider banning Robin Hood? Um, I think it's, I think I'm going to punt on that question because mm -hmm. I think when the, when the, when the question is, when the issue is a company has not violated the law, but has behaved unethically, um, I think to some degree it's on us as regulators to make sure that we tighten up the law. Um, but on the other hand, I think, I think the question for, for people who are in the shoes I used to have as a CEO you have to recognize yeah. that you have an obligation. If, if I was the CEO of a company that caused a commitment suicide, I'd be doing a lot more self-reflection than they seem to be doing right now. Absolutely. Congressman, it's been good to have you. Thank you, and keep us posted. Thank you, Kelly. Congressman Sean Kasson of Illinois, we did reach out to Robinhood, but the company hasn't yet responded to requests for comment about its business model. Stay with us. Still ahead, the hot housing market and urban flight. It's creating the perfect storm for ramshackle old houses in small towns. We're going to talk to a couple selling literally cheap old houses on Instagram right after this.
Welcome back. Record low mortgage rates have led to a multi-year high in housing affordability. But low inventory and urban flight accelerated by the pandemic have made homeownership tough for many cash-strapped millennials. My next guest launched an Instagram account to showcase their love of historic preservation. Over the past few months, it's also become a tool for people to land their dream homes cheaply. For more, let's welcome in the founders of Cheap Old Houses, Elizabeth and Ethan Finkelstein. It's great to have you both here. Welcome. Thanks, Kelly, for having us on and talking about millennials buying cheap old houses all across the country and saving, you know, a house at a time. Yes, I can't figure out what to make of this, Elizabeth, because on the one hand, I now follow you on Instagram and I think, this is amazing, these $23,000 beautiful old houses and someone's going to come love them and restore them and this is the best thing that's ever happened. And then other part of me goes, I couldn't even finish my vegetable garden this summer. Are people getting in way over their heads here? Well, look, a lot of people get in way over their heads in debt, you know, putting down a down payment on a house that they simply can't afford. And these are houses that allow you to put, you know, buy something from the get-go with closing costs you can actually afford and then chip away at it over time. So in a sense, yes, these houses require work. Is it satisfying work? Absolutely. How much, uh, Ethan, how many houses have you guys sold and, and what's the general demand like? How quickly do they go? We've had some crazy stories, actually. Um, I think we know about 40 people who've actually purchased these houses off the Instagram feed. And, you know, what we'll do is we'll, we'll, we'll post them and the realtor will get calls. Uh, we had one situation where there was dozens of people looking at the houses that weekend. Hundreds. Hundreds. <laughs> wow. And then one guy actually broke his car down, you know, coming across the country got a rental and finally got there. It's, it's, it's kind of this wildfire. <laughs> and people be- are literally Go ahead. Up ending their lives and moving across the country to buy these. So it's like they're, they're making huge life changes after, you know, seeing these houses on Instagram. And realizing that you can work from anywhere. I mean, the timing with the pandemic has made people realize you can work from anywhere. Sometimes you can school from anywhere. Elizabeth, I was going to mention, because Ethan said in passing, you know, you guys aren't the realtors. You're not the you're not realtors and you did your master's in historic preservation. So this is kind of a, a special cause for you. You grew up in an old house. I think it is. Um, what would your advice be to somebody who buys one of these things? How much should they realistically expect to spend two, three times the purchase price? It really depends on the house. Walk through it before you buy it with an inspector and right. get a sense of what you're looking at. But don't expect your house to look like an Instagram feed month one. Part of the love of working on these houses is learning how to do it using your hands. You know, we sit in cubicles all day. We don't feel connected to ourselves and, and the places we live. So that's part of the love of it. And and get yourself connected with a large community of people online that can help you and can support you. It's a very supportive community. That is a good really point. Really fun to be a part of. Yeah, you got to be in those Facebook groups to, to stick it out. Ethan, final question. You, your business model is kind of, you guys have these subscription services people can sign up for. Is this, are you able to make a living doing this? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, honestly, the biggest passion that we have is having these homes get in, in land into people's houses and, 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 you know, and just being able to buy them. I think we, uh, you know, as a couple, really, this, this was sort of happenstance. I mean, I think it's been our greatest joy to have newsletters and be able to support people's, you know, getting into their homes, um, you know, through these newsletters that you can subscribe. Elizabeth has you know, cheap old abroad houses, hmm. uh, you can do cheap old farmhouses, and you can do cheap-ish houses, which are houses under $250,000. So, yeah. Cheap old farmhouses is my favorite. <laughs> the ones with acreage. <laughs> yeah, mine too. Maybe someday cheap abroad houses when the, when the pandemic is over. Thank you both very much. Best of luck and, and help everybody finish these projects too. They're, I mean, this is, they're taking on a lot. Elizabeth and Ethan Finkelstein, thanks for joining me. 
Thank you. Go buy a cheap old house. (laughs) (laughs) Cheap old houses on Instagram. That does it for The Exchange today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.